Welcome to this week's episode of Honestly Speaking with Tara Setmayer, where I always quote Orwell and say, in a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. And that quote means so much to me because oftentimes when I do speak my mind, it can unleash revolutionary responses. (laughs) And if anyone has been following me on social media for the last week, they found out exactly what a revolutionary response can be. What was my daring act? It was criticizing Kanye West. Yes, I was in the middle of the Kanye fracas last week because I simply chose to be honest about my assessment on Kanye and about his newfound support within the Trump orbit. Now I'm jumping right into this because it was something that was just unbelievable, the response. It was unlike anything I'd ever experienced before. And usually before I get into what happened in the prior week, I I talk about a couple other things. Like I'm not going to talk about the Giants because they suck. My New York Giants have just completely imploded. We've got to get rid of Eli. I can't. So the season is officially over, embarrassingly. So that's that. I'm losing terribly in my fantasy league this year also. So everything is a mess on the sports front. So on top of all of that, we have some culture going on. We've got the intersection of culture and politics happening. We find out that Kanye West is going to the White House. Well, I was on Don Lemon's show last week and we were, when we first got the announcement and I made a comment that at the time I had no idea was going to go viral the way it did, but it did. And it was a provocative comment, but I was just being, like I said, honest, like I usually am. Uh, about this just fascination now with Kanye West being the this new spokesperson apparently for black people. He was the bridge now between black people and the Trump administration. At least that's the way that the Trump administration and Trump and others were trying to frame this. And I just thought that was ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. You know, Kanye West has always been a little off. He's always been kind of marched to the beat of his own drum from the very beginning. Talented guy musically, that's indisputable. But he's changed a little bit over the years, noticeably, gotten a little bit more out there with some of the things that he has said. And I made a comment after fellow um, CNN contributor Bakari Sellers made a comment pointing out that (laughs) this is what happens when Negroes don't read which is a play on words from Chris Rock's stand-up in the 1990s where he talked about the difference between um, the N-word, he actually used the word nigger, and black folks. And he said, if you want to hide your money, hide it in your books because niggas don't read. That's what Chris Rock said in his stand-up. So, uh, so Bakari was trying to play on that because, well, I don't know if that's the reason why, but I caught the reference. And It was because Kanye West has in the last year or so said some pretty ignorant things about slavery being a choice, about abolishing the 13th Amendment, and a host of other things. 
and it was just uh, uninformed. So that was Bakari's point. And then I went into my part and I said, well, you know, uh, I remember when particularly white America was very upset with Kanye West when he rudely interrupted Taylor Swift a few years ago during her uh, award speech. I forget which award show it was now, MTV Music Awards or something. When he said, you remember the whole, I'm gonna let you finish? <laughs> that, I mean, that turned into one of the biggest memes ever, right? I'm gonna let you finish, but Beyonce had the you know, the best video ever of all time or whatever, it was for single ladies years ago. And everyone was horrified. Even President Obama on a hot mic called him a jackass. So it was pretty universally accepted that Kanye was a jackass and he's continued to be. And, you know, um, remember during Katrina, Kanye said that President George W. Bush doesn't care about black people. Unfair, in my opinion. It was people were shocked. And so Kanye was not exactly looked at as someone who was so widely accepted, especially in the white community, right? I mean, maybe they liked his music, but he was excoriated for the most part for some of those things and some other controversial things, right? Okay, fine. So then I didn't think what I was saying was all that controversial, except that I used provocative language. I said that Kanye West was now all of a sudden the spokesperson for uh, for the Trump administration, that he was now the token Negro of the Trump administration. Now, the pearl clutching began in the right-wing media because I use the term token Negro. <sighs> Let me just say something, okay? The word Negro, is it an antiquated term? Yes, it is. If, if, is it used, if it's used by white folks, would you get a little, would you cringe a bit if they were describing a black person by that name? Yes, you would. However, it's a colloquialism in the black community where there, if there's some foolishness going on, people will say, will you, you know, Negro, please, or tell that Negro to cut that out. I mean, it's not the racial slur that the term nigger is. It's just not. This day and age, you still have the term. It was also a, a government, you know, recognized term back in the day. Um, nigger was not. You have the United Negro College Fund that's still in existence today. The National Council of Negro Women still in existence today. So all of the, all of a sudden, I started getting this influx from the MAGA crazies on social media, calling me a racist. What? I was like, wait, what? These people were off their rockers. This has gone, it's still going on actually, not as bad as it was last week, but for, for like four straight days because it became, our segment on Don Lemon became a viral sensation in right-wing media. Fox News, Breitbart, talk radio. I mean, it was ridiculous because, oh my goodness, Pearl Clutch, I said Negro, Bakari said Negro, we were calling Kanye West dumb, and um, it went for it, it. It just got completely out of hand, and so you know, I'm not going to apologize for using provocative language to describe what was going on, and I think that the white splaining that was going on to me about what's racist and what isn't was ridiculous. 
But the threats and the harassment that I received as a result of it was really pretty unbelievable. Now, I'm used to getting threats and stuff like that. It happened, it used to happen years ago, not as bad as now. And then in 2016, I got all kinds of stuff, really nasty, vile stuff, um, threats against my life for being a Republican and speaking out against Trump to the point where the FBI got involved and CNN security used to have to escort me in and out of the buildings. It was, it was an interesting time. Um, but obviously I was undeterred and that wasn't that kind of bullying wasn't going to work against me. So, um, you know, they're never going to silence me, but this was a, this, this latest episode was pretty significant. And, you know, I wasn't saying, oh, the other accusation was not only was I a racist, but I was a hater. I was jealous of Kanye West. Um, what else? Oh, um, uh, I'm a liberal because I was upset that God forbid a free thinking black man who decided to leave the democratic plantation speaks freely. You know, I'm just a hater. I want, um, some, one of those other, one of those other people who are shucking and jiving for Trump and Fox news said, um, that I, that we want to send the Democrat, we want our democratic slaves back. Interestingly, nobody mentioned that I'm a lifelong conservative and that my perspective on what Kanye was doing really was about the fact that people excoriated him. He's behaved erratically and been emotionally unstable. And because now he throws on a, a MAGA hat and says a couple of sound bites, my mom said it's like throwing meat to a bunch of junkyard dogs. They just go rah, 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 rah. as soon as you throw it in there. They don't even pay attention to what it is. They don't digest it. They have no idea. And the next thing you find out, it's actually elephant dung. That's exactly what's gone on here. All these people, these Trump cultists, these people that are, that are defending Kanye West as, the, as their new black conservative savior, have they ever listened to what Kanye actually says outside of some of the, some of the sound bites that sound good? Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm for helping people in Chicago. Yeah, I'm for criminal justice reform. Okay, that's great. But he was not able to put a cogent thought together. He, did anybody see what happened at the White House on Thursday? I case in point, I rest my case. So isn't the, the definition of tokenism when you're exploiting someone for your own benefit? So you can go, oh, see, look, I've got, you know, there goes, there's my African-American over there. Tokenism. That's exactly what's going on. And I am unapologetic for, for my statements about Kanye West in that respect. Too bad to the people who didn't like the fact that I said Negro. Guess what? All of you Fox News people and right wing media folks who who came after me, I don't remember that level that level of anger or pearl clutching when Rush Limbaugh played a parody on his radio show for like almost every day for eight years called Barack the Magic Negro. Hmm. Hmm. What about that? Now that was, you're telling me that wasn't racially tinged coming from Rush Limbaugh, who I used to like, by the way, years ago, before all of this crazy. But that never sat right with me. I wasn't a supporter of Barack Obama, but I thought it was completely inappropriate. I don't give a shit if it was a parody or not. You don't talk about the president of the United States like that. You just don't. But it was okay for, for Rush Limbaugh to do it. I didn't see Hannity and, and Breitbart and everybody doing stories accusing Rush of being a, 
a racist. No, it was it was parody. Bullshit. Okay, there are a bunch of hypocrites and there's a double standard. But it so that's the part that bothered me the most. It was just the the, the hypocrisy of it all. And you know, then you had a couple of other has-beens like Herschel Walker attacking me and gaining relevance by attacking me on social media and getting some segments on Fox News about it. <laughs> Bless his heart. Bless his heart. This this has nothing to do. If you are if you are a person of color, if you're a black, you're a Latino, whatever, you're a minority in this country, and you disagree with democratic policies and you want to support Republicans, good for you. I don't excoriate anybody for that, for goodness sakes. I spent my whole adult life supporting conservative policies. I worked on minority outreach for the in the beginning of my political career. So I, I'm the wrong one. That's not why I was criticizing Kanye. I was criticizing Kanye because he's uninformed, willfully ignorant, brags about not reading books. You can look it up. He said it himself. And he's being exploited. He's unstable and being exploited by Trump and his and his supporters. And shame on them. Shame on them. You know, that display in the White House is all you need to know. And yet these people were, were praising him as being, you know, some free thinker. Get the hell out of here with that. Now, there is something that I will apologize for. And, in, and initially, I, um, I, I didn't completely understand this because I was being accused of mocking the mentally ill. Now, I wasn't doing that. At least that wasn't my intention at all. When I had mentioned that Kanye was unstable, I mean, he's talked about his bipolar disorder and he also talked about how he took himself off his medication. And then on Thursday, he also talked about how that was a misdiagnosis. He actually was just sleep deprived. Okay. But I was not mocking the mentally ill during that CNN segment where I had mentioned that he had issues and that he'd been hospitalized for them and that you know, we can't take Kanye seriously. He's got issues. So I was only mentioning the hospitalization as a material fact just to point out that, you know, he's been incoherent and his, and his behavior has been erratic. So that's, you know, he's not in the seeking treatment now or anything. I wasn't making fun of it. It was just kind of a material fact. But a couple people and then someone else wrote a story about how I was stigmatizing the mentally ill. And that was never my intention. And I will, I will own up to that. If that, if my mention, mentioning the hospitalization part was stigmatization, then that I apologize for that. But I don't apologize for pointing out Kanye's own public behavior as to, um, you know, reasons to not elevate him at right now. He needs to get some help. And I encourage anyone to listen to Don Lemon's um, he his his take on this last week. He was also they were calling for him to be fired and everything else. And you know Don was just being honest, and it was heartfelt. So, um, so I will I will take I will take ownership if there was stigmatization as far as my comments about hospitalization. I was unaware; it was never my intention. Um, but I stand by everything else I said about Kanye West. And I wasn't going to spend that much time talking about it. And my mom was like, oh, just let it go. And I said, no, I can't. I have to, I need, I need to address this because it was so out of control. And my words and what I, what my criticism was based upon was so misconstrued that um, I, there was no way I was going to let that go. There was no way. 
So that's, uh, that's my, my thought on that. Um, it was a sad display. Kanye had no business being in the White House. Shame on Donald Trump for continuing this, this reality show nonsense in our Oval Office, Kanye cursing and everything else. I mean, it was, it was really, really horrible. And I'm old enough to remember when the same people who came after me for five days um, over there on Fox and the right-wing media freaked out when Barack Obama brought Common to the White House because of some lyrics, a couple of lyrics he had that were anti-police in their, in their um, opinion. Has anybody looked at Kanye West's lyrics where he talks about F the police, where he uses the word nigga on like every other word? Give me a break. So anyway, so the double standard is ridiculous just because now he's a token for them. Um, and uh, I just wanted to make sure that I stand by everyone understands where I was coming from and that I stand by everything I said, except for the part that I apologize for with hospitalization. I didn't know. I'm sorry. I learned something about mental illness and stigmatization. So I'm not, I'm, I'm not too big to admit where I, uh, where I have done something that was not right. So I admit it and I'm sorry. So moving on from Kanye, I just can't, I'm, can't even believe it was it dominated the news the way it did but what do they say when you elect a clown you get a circus uh let's see what else oh another hurricane hit and I um I just want to say I want to want to keep praying for those people in the panhandle of Florida and in Georgia that were hit by Hurricane Michael you know, I, um, I have a, we have, my family has a house in the Florida Keys. So we, we are familiar with hurricane evacuation and paying attention to the weather when it comes, when the weather reports come up, especially during hurricane season, I've evacuated a couple times with my family, helping them during hurricane season. Hurricane Irma was the first major hurricane that's hit the Keys in a long time. There was a lot of devastation there. Um, our, our house made it thankfully, but a lot of my friends lost everything. So I have a heart for, hurricane victims and and when that devastation happens and again what happened in the panhandle was really uh pretty serious i mean it was two miles an hour short of a cat five that is unimaginable and it happened so quickly people didn't really have a lot of time to to evacuate it was a it was a cat hurricane i think it was a cat two and then overnight it became a cat four strong cat four almost a cat five and also a lot of people were kind of like ah, cat two whatever and then bam so saying prayers to for all those folks in uh, the panhandle there in Georgia. Um, you guys will be all right. Material things can be replaced. Lives cannot. So big prayers out for Hurricane Michael. And if people want to help, I, I don't want to talk badly about any specific national organizations. But my suggestion for people who want to help those that lost everything in, in the hurricanes Look for local organizations where they have their the money goes directly to the organization. Um, sometimes those larger help organizations, those larger charities, spend a lot of money on overhead and advertising and ex- and executive salaries, and all that money doesn't go to where it needs to go to. So, my suggestion is look for a local organization where they are more directly involved with the people on the ground. Just my experience. Speaking of serious issues, one of them should never be finding great new looking blinds for your windows. That's why Blinds Galore is around. 
BlindsGalore.com was the first place to buy custom window treatments online so they know what they're doing. Not only have they been in business for over 20 years and have covered over 2 million windows, they're a family-owned business and they know exactly how to get you the right blinds at the right price. They make it so easy. Blinds Galore creates 100% custom window treatments built to your exact measurements down to every detail. You get professional designer quality products, but not at designer prices. In fact, they beat the big box store prices. BlindsGalore.com's products are hand-built from scratch, delivered right to your door, and they're created just for your windows. Their expert team is happy to help you every step of the way, either online or over the phone. Plus, they have the industry's best guarantee. So if you don't like your custom blinds or your shades for any reason at all, they're the wrong color, you measured them wrong, you don't like the style, you can just exchange them for free and get another one for free. Blinds Galore will even set you up with 15 free samples and free shipping on top of their free expertise. It doesn't get any better than that. Whether you need more privacy to sleep in or just to fix up a room, BlindsGalore.com has just what you're looking for. Blinds Galore makes it easy to get the custom blinds and shades you've always wanted in your home. Go check out BlindsGalore.com and let them know that I, Tara Setmayer, sent you. That's BlindsGalore.com. We are literally three weeks away from the midterm elections. I can't believe it. It's... um. It feels like a presidential election almost, for goodness sakes, but everybody's paying attention, which is important. You ha- we have to pay attention, and that's, ha- and that's happening. And it looks like uh, a couple of weeks ago, there was the National Voter Registration Day, and statistics have just come out that it was like a record-setting voter registration day. So that I like to hear. But you have to do more than just register. You actually have to then go to the polls and vote. A lot of people forget that part, too especially you millennials, people 18 to 24 years old, you guys notoriously don't vote. You need to vote. Uh, You can't complain if you don't participate in the system. So uh, they were expecting, I think it's an organization called Vote that they put on this national voter registration drive. They expected 300,000, maybe 400,000 people to register. 800,000 people registered or updated their registration. Fantastic. I love it. People have to get involved. Go and vote. Know the issues. Be an informed voter. Midterms matter. Everybody's congressional member of Congress is up for re-election. Pay attention. My grandfather always taught me to pay attention. So I'm telling you guys, please pay attention and go vote. That's my voter, my get out the vote announcement for the week. Three weeks, folks, three weeks. In some places, early voting has already started, so it's uh, it's underway. The c- control of the House and Senate is at stake, so pay attention and vote. What else is going on? Oh, goodness. Okay, so I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Uh, this week, I have Norm Eisen on as... Uh, my my interview guest, my conversation with Norm Eisen. He was a former ambassador to, to the Czech Republic. He was also the ethics czar under President Obama. He uh, He's an interesting guy. You see him on CNN. He's another CNN contributor along with me. He's, um, he's a straight talker. <laughs> uh, but Norm and I have a really, really interesting conversation about um, 
what's going on with Saudi Arabia and the murder of this uh, journalist, Jamal Khashoggi. And I'm sure a lot of people, and that's coming up in a little bit, but we also talk about Trump and his conflicts of interest with his business, which I'm going to get into right now um, on some things too. But I'm going to start with the the what looks like now the murder of the this Washington Post journalist named Jamal Khashoggi. He wasn't an American citizen. He was a legal resident here. And um, I'm sure a lot of people are wondering, like, why do we care? Like, why is the media going nuts over this whole thing? Well, for a couple reasons. First of all, for those who don't know, um, Jamal Khashoggi went into the Saudi consulate in Turkey and never came out two weeks ago. His fiance was waiting for him outside. He was supposed to be getting some paperwork because he wanted to get married. He is a Saudi citizen and he never came out. Now, there's a lot of aspects to this that are a little complicated as far as relationships between the U.S. and Turkey and Saudi Arabia and that part of the world. I'm not going to get into all of that, but just a little bit of background. So Khashoggi was not necessarily a dissident in Saudi Arabia, but he did write columns critical of some of the political things going on in Saudi Arabia, but he wasn't like flat out like calling for the overthrow of the royal family or anything. And he was very well respected by his colleagues here in, in the U.S. and internationally, just discussing Saudi politics. So I guess the Saudis were not happy about that. And the Saudis have this new crown prince named uh, Mohammed bin Salman. MBS is what he's got. He kind of like uh, Osama bin Laden, you know, UBL or OBL. Well, we're going to go by MBS for Mohammed bin Salman moving forward because that's a mouthful. And plus, that's what he's known by really colloquially in, in D.C. So this new Saudi prince, MBS, he has been hailed as this reformer and like charm the world because he's trying to kind of loosen up some of the more rigid religious parts of Saudi Arabia and let women drive and all these things. But he's kind of a bad guy. And he, the way he came into power is he ousted his cousin, who was actually in the line of succession to become the next king of Saudi Arabia. He upended him in this very well-orchestrated kind of a coup attempt and, and then completely upended the line of succession. Just bogarted his way in there. So that upset a bunch of people in the Saudi royal family as well that were kind of like, wait, what? That, that's not okay. And this happened around June of 2017. So this guy now is very influential. And I guess he, and he's been on this crusade to punish anyone who speaks out against the royal family or says or does things that they don't like because it's an authoritarian regime there. The kingdom is one of the most oppressive places on earth when it comes to um, maintaining order, let's just say. We have a very complicated relationship with Saudi Arabia. We consider them an ally because of our oil relations, and but we don't really need them as much anymore. But 70 years ago, we had a an agreement. You know, you give us oil, we'll, we'll provide security. They don't get along with Iran. There's a lot of stuff going on in that in that part of the world where we had a, a relationship with Saudi Arabia that we were supposed to be allies. Um, but then 
you know, Osama bin Laden was uh, from Saudi Arabia. They also have Wahhabism, which is a very radical form of Islam. And, you know, 15 of the 19 hijackers of 9-11 were from Saudi Arabia. So, you know, there's, it's complicated. It is the true definition of, and it's complicated relationship. But how does this relate to what happened with this journalist? Well, you know, when you have Donald Trump running around calling the press the enemy of the people, that has an effect that, that reverberates around the world. Because people look to the United States, we're supposed to be the, the beacon shining light on the hill, right? The beacon of, of freedom and an example. But, you know, there's a lot of oppressive regimes around the world that don't like a free press. And it's very dangerous to be a journalist. So when you see now the, who's supposed to be the standard bearer, the United States president, calling the press the enemy of the people, that's going to embolden some folks to say, yeah, okay, so we can do whatever we want to the media. And that's not, that's no good. So that's one aspect of why this matters. Also, there's the Turks say that they somehow had proof that the, that this, that, that Kosoji was murdered inside this consulate, which would indicate that they bugged the consulate and consulates are supposed to be sovereign property of that country so that brings up a whole another part of that um that was revealing during this whole thing they claim they had tapes of what happened and it was supposed to be pretty grisly he was murdered and allegedly um dismembered and that's how he was removed from the consulate and the saudis vehemently just denied this by the way they kept denying it denying it and then all of a sudden oh well maybe it was a an interrogation gone bad that's the latest now but donald trump he was on 60 Minutes and he said, oh, well, I believe the Saudis. You know, I have no reason not to believe him. Maybe they did it, maybe they didn't. But the king says no and he didn't know anything about it. And he kept emphasizing, well, he's not an American citizen. I mean, that, that's not the point. You can't allow countries to behave like that without consequence. But ever wonder why here we are again with the president of the United States basically poo-pooing some, a significantly... Um, I guess I no. he's 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 not condemning a, an act of violence against someone that's like against international norms. He's brushing it off. And I have no reason not to believe him. Well, you know what? There may be reasons why the president of the United States and Jared Kushner are so friendly with the Saudis personally. Now, bear with me, because I think it's important for people to understand facts. A lot of what I say, people think um you know oh well she's just spouting off and no what I say I back up with fact I don't just emotionally dive into things I try to be analytical about it I come from a point of view but I like to back it up with facts so here are some about Trump and Jared Kushner in Saudi Arabia that I think is relevant to this discussion because the president has been so nonchalant and dismissive of the condemnation of Saudi Arabia. So Jared Kushner, now he's buddies with this MBS, with this crown prince. And he's really been cozying up to him. And you can remember that that uh, Jared Kushner had a security clearance, 
which I was very critical of. A lot of people were very critical of that because what the hell is Jared Kushner doing A in the White House? Why is Ivanka in the White House? And why do they have security clearances? Why? They have absolutely no reason to have that on top of all the business conflicts of interest. I mean, uh, who knows what, what, what they're doing with that. So what was Jared Kushner doing with his security clearance initially? Well, the president gets something called the presidential daily briefing. It's one of the most classified documents the president gets. It's, it's tightly guarded. Very few people have access to it. it has the, you have to have the highest level of security clearance in order to read this thing. Because it's basically a daily intelligence brief of all the top secret stuff going on in the world and hotspots and what's happening and missions and all kinds of things. Well, guess who was reading the presidential daily briefing? It wasn't the president every day. It was Jared Kushner. Hmm. Why is he reading the presidential daily briefing? I don't know. We'll find out later, perhaps. So after MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, ousts his cousin in this power grab, the presidential daily briefing started to include information about internal Saudi politics because it was a significant, it was a significant event there. And some of the Saudi royal family members, like I said before, weren't too happy about this power grab. And they were, there were names of who those people were. Well, that was in June of 2017. In October of 2017, Jared Kushner decides to take an unannounced trip to Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. And it caught intelligence officials off, off guard. Because they're like, what is Jared Kushner doing going over there? He didn't go through normal diplomatic channels. Secretary of State didn't know. He just jetted off on a back-channel trip to go hang out with, uh, with MBS. Now, the Washington Post at the time... David Ignatius wrote a story about this and he said, well, you know, Kushner and MBS, they were up till four o'clock in the morning. They were planning strategy, telling stories and all cozying up. And, but no one really knows exactly what they discussed. We can only speculate. Now, it was also reported that MBS said that Jared Kushner revealed to him names of dissidents in the royal family. Jared Kushner, of course, denied that. But it was also reported that the one of the princes from the Emirates that he that he was told by MBS because the Emirates and the and the Saudis they're buddies that Jared Kushner was quote in his pocket. Okay. Fast forward, November of 2017, like a week after Kushner comes back from his little powwow, his secret powwow with MBS. MBS decides that he's going to do what they called an anti-corruption crackdown. And he imprisoned hundreds of people. You might not remember this, but go back last year, about a year ago, well, November of last year, this guy locked up like Royal Saudi members, prominent businessmen. He was holding people in the the Ritz-Carlton in Riyadh, not too shabby. But no, they were being held there against their will, basically being shaken down and tortured in some cases. Very prominent people. And interestingly enough, that a couple of the people that were named in those presidential daily briefings I mentioned before, they were among the people detained. And one was actually even tortured. Coincidence? 
I don't know. Maybe. Did Jared Kushner reveal that information? He says no. Was he sanctioned to do it? I don't know. But during that time last no, last November, when when MBS uh, imprisoned all these people, Donald Trump tweeted support for the, for the Saudi king and the prince. Oh, they know what they're doing. And a lot of those people that they that they've detained, they were you know cheating the cheating the government, not paying their fair share or something like that. That's what Trump. That's what Trump. <laughs> the tax sheet himself. That's what Trump actually tweeted at the time. What? Not only did they imprison these people for months at a time, they shook them down for billions and billions of dollars. Some of those guys had they had to sign over their real estate assets. They didn't even know uh, they didn't know what was what. What a power grab. Power grab and they seized billions of dollars. Seems a little suspicious to me. Now Kushner, it's also reported that he was continuing to communicate with the prince, the crown prince, and also his buddies over in the Emirates using the WhatsApp app because it's a secure app and that that was circumventing the Presidential Records Act. See, when you work in government at that level, there's federal law that says you have to keep a record of all your communications in official business capacity. You have the Federal Records Act and then you have the Presidential Records Act. And if Jared Kushner is using some back channel WhatsApp to communicate, are you circumventing those laws? Why? What, what are you trying to hide? He'll say nothing, but it was reported that he was told, eh, you got to stop that. You can't keep using that app. So allegedly he stopped. But then there's the business side of this. You know, Jared Kushner and his family, you know, his father went to federal prison and Chris Christie's the one who put him there. So there's a lot of bad blood over there. If anybody wonders why Chris Christie was not in the inner circle anymore and got kicked off the transition team. Yeah, a lot of that had to do with Jared Kushner being a little salty that Chris Christie, when he was attorney general in New Jersey, sent his father to federal prison for all kinds of white collar crime. But Jared Kushner's father is a pretty ruthless jerk. So if you ever go go back and look, go and look up what Jar- uh, Charles Kushner did. But Jared is, it was basically put in charge of this family business when his father went to federal prison. Jared was like, I don't know, 20 something years old. And at the time he made a purchase of a property, 666 Fifth Avenue. And it was for, it was way overvalued. It was a terrible deal. And not only did they overpay, then the financial crisis hit and it plummeted in value. And the Kushner company has been trying to get out from under this for years, years and years. And there's really, there's no American investment that's, that's ever going to rescue this, this sinking property. So Jared Kushner and his company, they've been looking for foreign investors. And guess who they approached? They approached Qatar. Now the Qataris are in a bitter feud with the Saudis. I'm not going to get into why it's a whole thing, but they, they're, they're in a feud with them. And, but the Qataris also are very wealthy. It's one of the wealthiest nations on the planet. I've been there. It's insane. Opulence is just insane. And they've been investing all over the world. And the Qataris have money from their natural gas reserves. And they've been investing major, major projects all over the world. And so, so Jared Kushner said, Hey, maybe I'll approach the Qataris and see if they're interested in, in investing in this deal for our real estate property. And the Qataris said, no, 
it's it's financially not viable. It's a hard pass. That was in April of 2017. After Jared Kushner was already in the White House, by the way. Um, the, 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 the Qatari say no. Okay. The next month, if you remember last year, Donald Trump went on his first foreign trip. Where did he go? He didn't go to Canada. He didn't go to Britain. He went to Saudi Arabia. And there was, I mean, the most ridiculous pomp and circumstance. Remember the glowing orb thing and the whole, I mean, it was over the top. Perfect for Donald Trump. He loves that kind of shit, right? It was ridiculous. And they treated him like royalty. Well, when he got back from that trip, then the Saudis and the Emirates, they engaged in a blockade against Qatar. So there, it was, the, what? Now let me tell you something else about Qatar. Now there's, there's a lot of controversy over Qatar and, and whether they finance terrorism and there's different things in that region as well. But we also have strategic interests in Qatar. There is an air force base there that ha- that's our central command for the Middle East for the war on terror. It is, it, that's where the air force basically refuels most of the planes that fly the missions in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria. How do I know? I've been there. I've actually been to that base. It's outside of Doha. I actually also had a very good friend that was stationed there for a year, but I've been there. So why, why are we now, you know, sitting back and allowing that kind of stuff to go on? It's very curious. Is it retaliation because the Qataris wouldn't do business with Jared Kushner's company? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But it's worth noting. Donald Trump. What are Donald Trump's longtime interests in Saudi Arabia, personally, with the Saudis? Well, you may remember that back in the early 90s, Donald Trump was half a step away from personal bankruptcy. Not only did his companies go bankrupt multiple times over, but he was personally very, very close to bankruptcy. And with a little help from his daddy and his family, but also from from some other things, he was able to emerge, but barely. In 1991, Donald Trump had to sell his yacht. This is this like almost 300 foot yacht called Princess. I can remember actually when I was a kid driving down the FDR when, you know, my family going down to South Street, South Street Seaport or somewhere over there and seeing that yacht parked over there. It was (laughs) kind of funny because you, I think it had a, helipad on it I can't remember that but I always remember there was this big yacht that was over there on the East River and that was the Trump yacht but anyway so he lost that yacht he had to sell it because he was like I said going bankrupt and guess who bought it it was a Saudi prince Prince Alawid bin Talal now Prince Alawid by the way just an aside he was one of those businessmen recently detained by MBS last year strangely but anyway so yeah, so Donald Trump sold that yacht for $20 million, a third less than he paid for it because he had to unload assets to get cash, and it was bought by a Saudi prince. Four years later, that same Saudi prince, Prince Alawid, was one of the major investors that bought the Plaza Hotel from Donald Trump for $325 million when Donald Trump ran the plaza into the ground. There's a lot of money involved here. There's a relationship. Fast forward to 2001. Trump has this tower, the Trump World Tower. It's right across from the UN. 
Um, and he sold an entire, the whole floor, the whole 45th floor of this tower for $12 million. At the time, it was the largest sale for any of his um, apartments back then. This is 2001. Guess who bought it? It was the Saudi Royal Kingdom. Mm-hmm. 2015. Shortly after Trump decides that he's going to run for president, makes the announcement, guess what happens? The Trump Organization files for eight LLCs to do business in Saudi Arabia. Eight of them. Now, this isn't something I made up. You can look it up. It's in, the t- it's in Trump's 2016 financial disclosure that they registered eight LLCs with Saudi Arabian ties. August 2015, Trump's at a rally in Alabama, and he's bragging, just like he did with the Russians. Remember, they, he bragged about the Russians years ago and Donald Trump Jr. about how they buy apartments and they do lots of business. Mm-hmm. The Russians were there to help bring him out of personal bankruptcy and his business is bank- out of bankruptcy too. But in 2015, at an, at an Alabama rally, what does Trump say? He brags about how much he loves the Saudis. He says, quote, they buy a lot of apartments from me, 40, 50 million dollars. I get along with all of them. Am I am I supposed to dislike them? I like them very much. It's all about the money. Again, all about the money. 2016, Trump wins. Then all of a sudden, the Trump organization shuts down those companies, those LLCs that they had originally they originally registered because nobody thought he was going to win right? Even Trump didn't think he was going to win. So he was just setting up business opportunities because that's really what running for president was about. It was an ego trip and it was to set up for business interests. Well, they had to shut those down because now he can't do direct business with these, with these countries because it's a conflict of interest. At least it's supposed to be. And um, when, in, in my conversation with Norm Eisen, we talk a little bit of what, about what the emoluments clause is which is basically you can't profit off of foreign money um, and how Trump is violating that. But one example is the Trump Hotel, the Trump International Hotel right here in Washington, D.C. It's a nice hotel from what I hear. I remember when it was the old post office pavilion, but I won't step foot in it. I have yet to. A lot of my friends go there for drinks all the time and or they have uh, get togethers and I'm like, count me out. You won't catch me stepping foot in there, nor will I spend one penny in that place. Nope. Sorry. But anyway, I hear it's very nice, though. Anyway, so the Trump Hotel um, has been doing a lot of business with foreign leaders or subsidiaries of them or their lobbying firms. Yeah, of course, because people want to curry favor with Trump. So they go to his hotel including a PR firm for the Saudis that spent $270,000 in the first quarter of the Trump presidency on catering and events there. $270,000 in three months. They are also lobbying for Saudi interests. The Attorney General of D.C. and the Attorney General of Maryland, they actually were like, wait a minute, this, is, this doesn't smell right, so uh, we're going to sue based off the emoluments clause. Also, Norm Eisen's organization is involved with that. We talk about that in a little bit. But they sue. Now, the Trump Hotel in New York. When when Mohammed bin Salman, when MBS came to the U.S. Uh, a couple of months ago, he did kind of a PR tour. And everybody was like, all oh, falling all over him because he's such a reformer. Yeah, okay. Um, he gets where he stayed. Oh, at the last minute, he made a big reservation at the Trump Hotel in New York. So big 
that it represented a 13% increase in revenue for the first three months of that year. Ahead of two years prior to that, that that hotel was losing money. 13% increase. That's how much money that MBS spent in that hotel. (laughs) There's more. So in 2017, the Saudi government announced that they were going to invest $20 billion in private U.S. focused infrastructure funds. And one of those groups was called Blackstone Group. The CEO of Blackstone Group, Stephen Schwartzman, he's a big Trump supporter. Not long after Saudi Arabia made that announcement, Trump unveils that he's going to have a, you know, he, uh, he wanted a $200 billion infrastructure plan. I don't know, that has yet to move forward, but he made the announcement. Oh, okay. So, you know, we're going to have new roads and airports and all this. Mm-hmm. And he wants to use public-private partnerships and private companies like Blackstone to do it, to help finance these projects. Well, guess where Schwartzman spent his birthday? The CEO of Blackstone at Mar-a-Lago. Guess who also traveled with Trump to Saudi Arabia? Stephen Schwartzman. It's all interconnected. So when we see and we question why Donald Trump reacts the way he does or why he dismisses human rights violations and things that are obvious to everyone else when countries like Russia or Saudi Arabia, just follow the money. Speaking of following the money, my guest this week is the perfect person to discuss that since he was known as the ethics czar in the Obama administration. But Norm Eisen, he's a CNN political commentator, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and board chair of Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, also known as CREW. He writes regularly for the New York Times, the Washington Post, USA Today and Politico. He's an attorney who previously served, like I said, as the White House Special Counsel for Ethics and Government Reform, and he was also the ambassador to the Czech Republic. He's the author of a new book out called The Last Palace, and I'm so excited to bring him on today to talk about his book, uh, which is out now, The Last Palace, Europe's Turbulent Century in Five Lives and One Legendary House. It's a really good read, and... um, I'm glad to welcome Ambassador Norm Eisen. Well, I'm so pleased to have Ambassador Norm Eisen with me today and to talk about a lot about things that have been going on that are really relevant. And I think some people, they, they see you as this, the ethics czar, and they see you on CNN talking about things that probably in the past people thought were boring. But I think, but now more than ever, I think it's important to have people like you who understand ethics and explain why we should care. So I'm glad to have you today on with me, Norm. Well, thanks, Taryn. I'm a big fan of your outspoken analysis of everything that's going on. So it's an honor to be with you. Oh, that's very, very kind of you. I appreciate it. I just say I'm just being honest. Thus the name of the podcast, <laughs> honestly speaking. It was, it was natural. <laughs> well, uh, we all appreciate it out there. Thank so you. thank you. Thank well, you. The, the admiration is mutual because you are another one of those people who tells it straight. And um, in this era of, of deceit, I say it's important to tell it straight. So let's 
talk about some things that are going on in the news. And then we're going to get into um, how the, it's relevant to your book, The Last Palace, which was beautifully written, by the way. Um, and I encourage people to to go out there and get it because it's available now. Um, what's going on with the Saudis, Trump, and what we now pretty much know is the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. And why do you call Jared Kushner a shlemiel? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, uh, uh, let me start with uh, start with the deterioration in the um, uh, big bet uh, that Kushner and his father-in-law, President Trump, have made uh, on the Saudis because we saw. Uh, why that was such a foolish move on their part. Uh, Trump visited Saudi Arabia and he staked a lot of his Middle East policy on ties to Saudi Arabia, intelligence, national security, commercial ties to Saudi Arabia. And we got a dramatic reminder uh, when uh, Mr. Khashoggi was abducted. He went into the Saudi uh, diplomatic premises in Turkey. He never came out again. And now we're starting to see the uh, uh, Saudi excuses. First, it was vehement denials. Now they're saying, oh, uh, we, we're seeing some trial balloons that it was a uh, intelligence uh, operation. Yeah, botched uh, interrogation, I think, is what the, yeah, the line gone, is now. Yeah, gone wrong. Uh, that this was never intended. Look, it's not a, even if that's the story they stick with. And who knows? Maybe they'll come up with some other story tomorrow. These are not people who are the Saudis. Uh, they're not people who who are reliable interlocutors. It's not like our traditional allies that the president is so openly hostile to. Uh, France, the UK, Germany, NATO is constant attacks on NATO, even uh, 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 threatening uh, Canada and Mexico at times. Um, instead, when you're dealing with the Saudis, you're, you're dealing with with a an autocratic totalitarian regime. And so the notion that they would even feel free to um, uh, 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 to try to uh, trap this uh, American, uh, 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 he was a uh, columnist, right, for the Washington columnist Post. Columnist for the Washington Post, um, uh, operating uh, uh, under uh, American protection is reprehensible. And how can we believe this latest story? And that brings me, Tara, to why Jared Kushner. Uh, is, as we say in Yiddish, a shlemiel, (laughs) is so foolish because the Saudis are not reliable partners. And he, by investing so heavily in them, reportedly the crown prince uh, in Saudi Arabia has said, Kushner's in my pocket. Perhaps there there are questions, at least, about business dealings between President Trump, between Kushner and the Saudis as well. This is not who you want for a partner. And I say that uh, both as a student of corruption, a former ethics czar, and also as an ex-ambassador. You're better off with your traditional allies. 
you know, that's uh, a, a lot of people. There's just been so much stuff that goes on all the time with the Bush administration. I mean, the Obama and not none of them, <laughs> the Trump administration um, that we forget about some of these serious conflicts of interest and why Trump responds to some of these things similar to why we when we look at this and go, why the hell won't Donald Trump criticize Vladimir Putin? It's indisputable that this guy is a murderous dictator. He's not our friend. He's an enemy of the United States. Same thing with the Saudis. A little bit more of a complicated relationship because of the of oil resources and other things and our relationship with them in that region and with Israel and all that a little more complicated. But this, there is a problem in Saudi Arabia with Wahhabism and terrorism. 15 of the 19 hijackers in 9-11 were from Saudi Arabia. It's very complicated. And then we send Jared Kushner over there to be this kind of secret back channel. Like when he went there last year and a couple weeks later, the, the new crown prince, um, Mohammed bin Salam, is locking people up and detaining people and his, you know, his consolidating power. You think there wasn't a, a wink and a nod there with that? Obviously, Jared Kushner is in his pocket or else why would they be so emboldened to do what they did with this journalist? Well, uh, the Saudis do not take the same approach to human rights, the rule of law, uh, and uh, liberal democracy as the United States and our uh, Western allies, we don't know the full facts uh, of the entanglements between the Trump and Kushner families and the Saudis. Part of the reason we can't understand that is because we've got the first president who's refused to put his tax returns out there, so we can't evaluate all these kinds of ties. Uh, we don't know the full, there's still questions about uh, Kushner's business dealings. There's still some opacity around those business dealings. So it may be that um, that there's that there is some kind of leverage. Tara, it may simply be that they know now that Trump and Kushner have so visibly embraced them that it's going to be difficult for them uh, to uh, to back away. Uh, I, those questions need to be asked. And if the Saudis think they can just say, oh, this was an intelligence operation gone wrong, it was supposed to be an interrogation, uh, and uh, there was never an intent to do this, they're not going to be able to get away with that. They're taking on uh, the uh, not just the Washington Post, but all of American journalism, people are up in arms about this, and Congress is up in arms about it. So I don't think they're going to be able to, uh, you know, simply draw the wool over our eyes like they evidently can do with Trump and Kushner. Well, interestingly enough, when you say Congress is getting involved, um, it, it seems as though a rare act of bipartisanship is taking place there, but where the members of both sides recognize that the Saudis can't get away with this, even if the president is parroting the Saudi propaganda coming out, which he said recently, claiming something about rogue killers could have possibly done this, which is ridiculous. And he, you know, he he just seems to not want to um, take as forceful of a position. But Congress is even invoking the Magnitsky Act. Right. Yes. Yes, that's that's right. It's called the uh, Global Magnitsky Act. And um, uh, uh, the Congress can, by a letter, 
uh, from the Senate Foreign Relations Committee uh, can uh, trigger a, a, a mandatory presidential review of whether there was an abuse here. And they've done that with every member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, save one, uh, Rand Paul, who uh, favors the same kind of isolationism as the president. But incredibly, every other member, Democratic and Republican, has written to the president because uh, this is a terrible abuse of somebody who was applying for a permanent residency in the United States. Uh, I view him as being, and most people view him, as being uh, under the protection of the president. For the president to uh, throw him to the dogs uh, is not going to work. And, uh, you know, it's very... It's very disheartening that the president is echoing these um, seeming, seemingly emerging Saudi talking points. And you have to ask the question, uh, what do the Saudis have financially on President Trump? That's among the questions we have to ask. Well, add it to the list. What do the Russians have? What do the Saudis have? I mean, and again, it goes it speaks to what you said about Trump not releasing his tax returns. So there isn't financial transparency there. And the New York Times had that big story two weeks ago now, and it was buried because of the Kavanaugh stuff about the history of Trump and his family being tax cheats, which is significant, which leads me into the into the next issue, which is emoluments. You say that the that that Trump is emolumentally compromised, which I think is, <laughs> which is a great play on words. Um, explain briefly for those who don't know, other you know the nerd, the people like us are nerds. We know what the emoluments clause is, but most average people have no idea what that is. What is the emoluments clause, and why is it such a bee in your bonnet with the Trump administration? Well, Tara, the uh, founders of the United States and the framers of our Constitution were terrified uh, of uh, a scenario where you had the president of the United States uh, who could be uh, influenced by uh, large payments from foreign governments. Um, You know, uh, governments have a lot of money, and for relatively – uh, what would, what's a relatively modest amount to a government can be a lot of money to an individual. And so they put in a flat prohibition on these foreign government payments. That's an 18th century word called emoluments. It means anything of value from a foreign government coming to a president. And it's prohibited in the Constitution. And Donald Trump is raking in these emoluments, these foreign government uh, payments and other benefits. We know he's he's said openly in the past that the Saudis spend millions at his property, and we have evidence that they have continued spending at his properties while uh, he's president. And um, so do the Russians. So- he bragged about that, too. And we know that he and his family, his sons in particular, have boasted, pre- again, previously about uh, Russian money coming into their businesses. In fact, we know Donald Trump does business with many of the countries. He relies on monuments, anything of value from governments where we have profound security interests, whether it's India, Egypt, Japan, you name it. So China, 
Um, so uh, this is an enormous national security threat, and you really see it with the case of this Mr. Khashoggi, because the question is, is Mr. Trump holding back on his criticism of the Saudis? Did the Saudis feel emboldened to, as it appears, kill a journalist who was under American protection applying for permanent residency here in the United States, writing for the Post, because Mr. Trump takes millions of dollars from the Saudis. That's the question. Right. And he does a really good job of masking that when he was asked on 60 Minutes uh, about what he would do. He went into this diatribe about, well, I'm not going to cancel the arms deals because it would hurt American jobs. You know, He's very good at marketing that and, and kind of a bait and switch when he himself oftentimes has personal business interests in these very issues. Even with China, you brought up China. You know, you had a Chinese bank that helped fund a, a, pro, a Trump project in Indonesia around the same time that Trump was, was uh, you know, making an appeal to, to China on some things. I mean, the bait and switch constantly goes on, which is partly why I think what why your organization, Crew, has sued for uh, the Trump administration to get some more transparency about this so the American people can see what the president of the United States and his family and their business cabal is doing and how they're enriching themselves off the presidency, Correct. Uh, we yes, that's correct. Uh, our watchdog group um, has uh, brought uh, litigation in multiple courts uh, to enforce the constitutional prohibition on emoluments. And we want to get discovery. We want to get information about what payments and other things of value Mr. Trump is getting from Saudi Arabia and these other foreign governments. And we want to get a, a court uh, order saying uh, that Trump cannot take these uh, benefits uh, any longer. So we're we're litigating. Uh, we, we're proud. We were successful. We're co-counseled uh, with the attorneys general of D.C. and Maryland. And they uh, won standing with our help uh, to proceed with this case. And now we're going to get to uh, uh, get to do we've asked to do some discovery because the American people need to know uh, what are the exact nature of the financial ties and how are they influencing Donald Trump and his family? And the, the biggest symbol of that would be the Trump International Hotel right here in Washington, D.C., which he still, just to explain so people understand, Donald Trump, even though he said that they said that they would donate any profits from that hotel back to the Treasury, right? Am I, under, am I correct on that? That's what uh, they claimed? That is Yes, that, that is what they happened, said they would do. Right, but well, we don't, that hasn't happened. <laughs> we're, we're, you know, the thing about Donald Trump is you're never able to, to verify exactly what's going on. So the information is so partial. You know, this week, uh, another one of his commitments, he promised he would donate a million dollars if uh, Elizabeth Warren uh, got a DNA test uh, demonstrating she's Indian. Guess what? It happened. And then he says, oh, I never said that. But it's on tape. So, so <laughs> there is a similar and same with this, same with this issue. So we're going to get to the bottom of this is one of the questions that we're going to get into with the discovery in the case uh, with uh, 
uh, uh, demanding information to understand exactly what's going on because you can't play these games with the American people, Tara, and it's hurting the president. He has historically low approval ratings. This is not what the American people bargained for, uh, and I don't think they like it. And I don't think that the people who the, the supporters of Donald Trump who are average hardworking Americans would appreciate the fact that he's enriching himself off the presidency, even all the way down to when he goes to these disaster relief um, uh, trips and things like he's been he did this week. He went to, down to Panhandle, Florida. Um, and, you know, we keep praying for those poor folks who lost everything in Hurricane Michael. He goes there and he shows up with these MAGA hats and his wife shows up with a new MAGA hat. Well, guess what, folks? They're advertising those hats, which they're sold, which are sold on their campaign websites and they make money off of it. Right. Isn't that a Hatch Act violation? <laughs> well, we did have a Hatch Act violation with a MAGA hat last week. Uh, but it came with Sarah Sanders. She posed for a picture when Kanye West was in the Oval Office with wearing a MAGA hat, wearing campaign paraphernalia, and blasted that out on a government account. You're not allowed to do that. Uh, she was, in effect, uh, um, electioneering. She was doing campaigning. So what was yet another uh, of an epidemic of these Hatch Act violations. So I think it's incredibly unseemly to utilize these when the president or his wife or family members uh, go to these disaster uh, sites, um, devastating uh, uh, suffering of people to use that to uh, sell campaign paraphernalia. Not right. Somehow he always manages to, manages to make things about him. Um <laughs> It's unbelievable. Um, I just want to talk briefly a little bit about the Mueller investigation because you and um, my fellow colleague at CNN, Asha Rangappa, you guys did an explainer uh, not too long ago about the role of R Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein and kind of what's going on with the Mueller investigation. And everybody had a little bit of a freak out two weeks ago when we thought Rosenstein was out of there. But he survived now, and on this week's edition of the White House Survivor, he's so far he's safe. Um, wh why do you, why do you think that um, Rod Rosenstein is not conflicted? Because the critics out there, the Fox News propagandist people, every night at nine o'clock, go on and on about how Rod Rosenstein has a conflict of interest and how he should be removed in the Mueller investigation. You say no. Uh, well, there's um, a set of rules that apply to uh, when conflicts exist for prosecutors. Um, and uh, Rod, of course, is uh, is uh, uh, occupying one of the most important prosecutorial jobs uh, in the federal government as the deputy attorney general. He's overseeing the Mueller investigation because Attorney General Sessions is recused. So for purposes of the Mueller investigation, Rod is the <clears throat> the acting attorney general. In those situations, we don't make conflict determinations just because Fox News or the House Freedom Caucus doesn't like somebody, wants them gone, thinks it would advance the president's uh, defense. We do it under a set of rules. And under those sets of rules, um, you don't knock out a prosecutor, particularly a very senior one. Uh, and until you uh, have a conflict ripen to the point where that individual is uh, 
for example, likely to be a witness before a jury, or that individual himself or herself is likely to be charged. Or, or the, the mere fact that um, that Rod is may or may not be a percipient witness to some of the events in question under the rules, it's a very well articulated body of uh, rules about this. It, it isn't enough to knock him out. So uh, anybody who understands these rules, and as I have as applied them, as litigated them, knows uh, that those uh, this is game playing by Trump's allies. And uh, most of uh, People who are serious about uh, evaluating government conflicts do not think the time is yet right. So where do you think the the chances are of Trump actually sitting down with Mueller? And do you what do you think is the most significant aspect of the Mueller investigation, especially coming from your perspective as a an ethics czar who's who's worked in the White House and watching the way this investigation has unfolded? What do you think is the most significant significant aspect of the investigation, and will Trump sit with him? Uh, I um, I uh, don't know if Trump will sit with him or not. What's happening right now is uh, written questions are being negotiated on collusion only, only on the question of whether the Trump campaign or those around the president conspired. Uh, with the Russians in attacking our government. We know there was a Russian attack. The only question was the the Trump campaign, Trump family or friends role in the attack, if any. Um, so first, um, Mueller is addressing collusion. Then he'll make a decision once he gets questions and answers on collusion. Uh, he'll make a decision about what to do on obstruction of justice. And that's where I think the greatest significant exposure for Trump is because there's overwhelming evidence. I've written a long report. Actually, it's in its second edition now uh, at Brookings on uh, the case uh, of whether or not Mr. Trump obstructed justice and reached the conclusion there's very substantial evidence of obstruction. It may be that that evidence is so substantial that uh, Mueller doesn't feel he needs to talk to Trump. Uh, So uh, we're just going to have to wait and see about that, but that's where the greatest risk is obstruction. How long? How much longer do you think we're going to go with this Mueller investigation? People are getting antsy. Do you think we're in the fourth uh, quarter here with this? Uh, I think that um, things are going to come to a bit of a head after the election. Uh, I suspect that Sessions and Rosenstein are going to go. I don't uh, know if Trump is going to try to fire Mueller directly. I think they'll be uh, uh, hell to pay if he does. So, uh, but I expect that that there'll there'll be some movement on these issues once we're past the election. There is a tradition of a sixty-day um, uh, um, period before an election when DOJ tries not to make major announcements because it can have a disturbing effect on an election. It happened with Jim Comey's letter about Hillary Clinton, devastating. So Bob uh, does not want to uh, repeat that mistake. I, I think you're going to see a uh, post. Uh, so I think we, we will see some movement post-election. I also think that Jeff Sessions' days are numbered and he will not make it into the next year. 
Um, let's talk about your book, The, the Last Palace. Um, uh, the Last Palace, Europe's Turbulent Century in Five Lives and One Legendary House. Uh, I always emphasize how important it is for people to really understand and know history. And for those of us who um, try to, to know history and learn it and understand it, look at what's going on here in the Trump administration, and we see significant warning signs. So when when someone like you, who's been there as an ambassador, has decided to write a book that's historically based, and then you're able to demonstrate some of the parallels to what's going on now, I just think it's it's important for people to to pay attention to. So when you decided to read this book and write this book, it was really, it came from your experience as ambassador to the Czech Republic. And well, pick it up from there. What inspired you to write the book? Well, um, uh, I got to Prague in 2011 after two wonderful years working in the White House. The president asked me if I would serve as our ambassador to the Czech Republic. On my first day there, the butler uh, showed me something beneath a beautiful antique table located in this magnificent house tower where the U.S. ambassador lives in Prague, 150-room-plus mansion on acres of gardens in a compound. It's, it's, it's really one of the most beautiful homes owned by the United States anywhere in the world. And he showed me, the butler did, under this table, uh, a swastika. And that hit me very hard because um, I am the child of a Czech-American Holocaust survivor. My mother uh, was uh, deported to Auschwitz from then Czechoslovakia by those same people who I learned had lived in this house. They had occupied this house uh, during World War II, the Nazi occupiers. And that discovery set me off on a journey to learn the history of the house. And I went all the way back to 1918 when the house, the idea of the house was first developed with the time of Wilson, President Wilson's uh, exporting American style democracy to Europe and all the way to the present to the present. I traced the history to 2018. So 100 years of history. And here's what I learned. And it's so relevant to today that there have been great surges of democracy on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean. And then there have been retrenchments. There have been counterattacks and uh, three great surges and three great counterattacks. And it's cyclical. And we're now in the cycle of counterattack. And all across Europe, uh, uh, anti-democratic leaders, as we say, illiberals, they don't like liberal democracy, Illiberals are uh, pushing back on democracy, and democracy is fighting for its life. And one of them, the leader of that movement in Europe, Vladimir Putin, attacked our democracy in America in the 2016 elections to devastating effect, I believe, delivering the elections to Donald Trump. So um, uh, this uh, cycle has reached across the Atlantic Ocean, as it always has in the past. Democracy, that's one of the lessons. It can't exist unless it's strong on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean. And I think it's a reminder to us, but also it's hopeful because democracy has defeated far worse challenges than the ones we're facing now. Absolutely. 
um, something I noticed about your book, which is it's evident throughout the book, is the influence that your mother really had on your experience um, and and in your life and her experiences as a Holocaust survivor, uh, as someone who was born in in Czechoslovakia, as it was known back then. Um, and she was very she she had a um, she was tough. She was a tough lady. I have a lot of respect for your mom reading this. I, uh, she was a tough cookie. Kind of reminded me of my grandmother um, in that way. And and she, um, you, you, there's a passage in your book where where you talk to her, uh, where she recounts watching the 1968 invasion of of Czechoslovakia by the Russians, and she said, "Bastards on the left, bastards on the right. What difference did the labels make? As far as she was concerned, they were all the same." Do you feel yes. like there was a lot there's that that same feeling going on today with a lot of the disillusionment with what we see in our politics? Well, um I, you know, first of all I want to say you and my mom would have gotten along great because <laughs> you are very outspoken and you are very strong in saying what's going on and irrespective of party. Uh and my mom was the same way. She <laughs> called it the way she saw it. Uh, on all sides of the polit political spectrum. But I think there's an asymmetry. I think that there is just, you know, you look at President Trump, whatever imperfections there may be, and there are. My own feeling is that uh, some in the Democratic Party are still too reliant on special interests, lobbyists, on, on, on uh, dark money, special interest dollars. And my watchdog group has hit people in both parties. It's gotten much worse in the party of Trump. And um and 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 the way in which he attacks everything in our democracy. It's the reason, you know, liberal democracy, that means liberal just means freedoms that we we're our democracy is based on freedoms, personal, political, media freedom. That's right. Uh, rule of law, freedom, market freedom. Trump attacks them all. So he's fundamentally I think he's fundamentally anti-democratic. And, and, and so there's a much worse problem. And, you know, my mother didn't like him even when he was a private citizen. She would have hated him as president. So I think she would have said that there's a far worse problem, asymmetrical dysfunction uh, pointing to the right. Uh, absolutely. And I would have loved to meet your mom. <laughs> uh, she would have got along with my grandmother, too. My grandmother, Gloria Mayor, was was a uh, tough cookie. We always Definitely. say, you know, with each generation, you get you get a little tougher. Right. <laughs> Um, yeah. There was something uh, else that was that I didn't know that I learned in your book. And um, and I think that you've mentioned before, this was one of the more more uh, interesting aspects during the research was the role of Shirley Temple in the history of the of Czechoslovakia and the Czech Republic. And, and she became ambassador. Um, <laughs> did you just talk a little bit about? Yes, that Shirley Temple yeah. for people who are wondering. Yes, she, she went on to be Shirley Temple Black and became the ambassador to the the Czech Republic in uh, 1989, I believe. But um, just talk a little bit about that in the last few minutes we have. Uh, people have uh, forgotten that the um, a movie star, the child star Shirley Temple, uh, had a brilliant government career, and the way that happened. Uh, was so fascinating to her. She was in Prague, in the last palace, in this magnificent house I write about, in um, 1968. She was there 
to see the Prague Spring. Prague was liberalizing, was breaking away from the Soviet Union. And uh, the Soviets sent in tanks to crush the popular um, the popular uh, 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 liberalization. And Shirley Temple saw that, and she was so um, devastated by particularly she saw a Czech woman gunned down. She was so devastated. She says, I'm quitting the movies. I'm going to come back here someday as ambassador, and I'm going to end communism. And that is exactly what she did in 1989. She was appointed by George H.W. Bush, and she came back and she helped the Czechs get rid of communism. She was a wonderful uh uh, best supporting actor, you could say, uh, using that magnificent house as a stage, but pushing the, the, the Czech people to take the lead, because that should not be an American-led uh, initiative. America should support, but it needs to be owned by the Czechs. <clears throat> and she did that brilliantly. So she was one of our great citizen diplomats. And I tell that whole story, 68 and 89, yep. and it will come as a surprise to people and it's that's why I'm hopeful now, because uh, the threats that uh, democracy has confronted and defeated uh, over the past hundred years have been so much worse than the ones we have now. So uh, uh, if we could uh, win World War One, defeat the Depression and fascism, win World War Two, um, uh, bring peace to Western Europe. Um, uh, align Germany for the first time ever with France and the UK as uh, as as a firm part uh, of the liberal democratic West and the Cold War, defeat communism. If we could do all that, surely we can defeat the Trump-Putin axis. Well, there's another part in your book where you talk about the three lessons that your mom always taught you. She said to always do the right thing, always be loyal and do your best work no matter what. And I have to say that, you know, that the, this is such an excellent book. Um, and I, I, I learned a lot from it. And I'm, I, uh, I think that you've certainly lived up to what your mom set for you, but can you make a mean hamburger? Uh, I can, <laughs> I was trained. Those are the three rules of the hamburger stand. Always, uh, always do the right thing, always be loyal, and always make the best hamburger you can. I was trained on the grill, and I'm still the best griller, family grill master. That's me. There you and go. you'll have to join us sometime for one of our family cookouts and come and have a kosher hamburger with us, Tari. You're welcome anytime. I would love that. And Norm's family for those, well, you have to read the book to find out uh, about that. But his 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 family came from very humble roots when they came to this country and they started a hamburger stand in South Central Los Angeles, right? Um, Correct. And, uh, and that was the, so humble beginning. So uh, an amazing American story. So I would love to join you and I hope that we get to get a chance to make that happen. Ambassador Norm Eisen, such a pleasure to have you. You're welcome back on my podcast anytime. Tara, such a joy to be here and um, bring all your listeners along for the cookout too. Everybody's <laughs> welcome. <laughs> I, I don't know about that, but my husband will definitely co definitely come along because he's a grill master too. So maybe you guys can exchange uh, you can exchange deal. notes. <laughs> definitely. definitely. All right, Norm. Thank, thank you so you. much. Thanks, Tara. 
right, so it's time for my feel-good story of the of the week, and uh, we you know, we always talk about some serious issues. I try to lighten it up because we just need to um, to let you know that the world is still a good and decent place. Well, this week's feel-good story is about Ian Unger. He is a kindergarten student in Michigan, and he has type one diabetes. And um, when his family found that out. Um, he was told that he could not ride the bus to school anymore unless he had an aide with him in order to, you know, in order to be there in case he had, um, you know, an, an episode with his, with his diabetes. Well, the family was denied an aide. And so they said, well, the school system said, well, then he's going to have to ride the bus by himself because we you know for liability purposes. Well, obviously for a little kid who likes to be around his friends, that was pretty traumatic. The idea of having to ride to school, to, you know, ride, riding the bus to school by himself. So his mom said, well, let's see what, what's another possibility. What could we do here? Well, they came up with a plan to get Ian a service dog as his companion. And that way the service dog can alert him to any emergencies in lieu of an aid. Now, anyone who knows anything about service dogs knows that they, they serve all different purposes. You know, a lot of times you see service dogs with people who are blind um, they do amazing things. My one of my best friends, her her husband, was a special forces guy, blinded on a mission in Afghanistan, and he has an amazing service dog named Kenny that is indispensable. Helps him get away, get along, do all kinds of things. Service dogs are amazing. They they you know help veterans. They help. They're they're just unbelievable what they can do now and what they can train service dogs to do. Something else they can train service dogs to do is they are able to detect. When, um, when, uh, if someone's having di- diabetic, going into a diabetic shock, they're able to detect that. And one of the things that I learned with this story, which I didn't know, I knew that they were able to detect, um, certain things, you know, medical conditions, especially with diabetes, but the service dogs, they can detect if you're going to go into an insulin shock or if your insulin drops dangerously 45 minutes before it happens. That's pretty amazing. I I love animals. (laughs) Um, anyway, so, um, so Ian decided that he was going to raise money because it takes, it's expensive to get these service dogs, to train them and get them because they're so specialized. They cost tens of thousands of dollars. So Ian decided that he was going to raise money with his, and sell pumpkins. How cute for $5 to raise money for his, for his service dog. Well, Ian's mom took it upon herself to start a GoFundMe page advertising what's going on. Um, in addition to, you know, his, uh, Ian's little pumpkin patch selling thing. So he, guess what? Of course the community saw what was going on and people rushed to help. And not only did he sell out of his pumpkins pretty quickly, but within four days they raised $20,000. So good for Ian Unger. He's going to get his service dog. And, um, I just, love the generosity of people and I love dogs and I love kids. And so it's a happy ending. Um, I think the GoFundMe is still going on though, but uh, if you guys want to check it out for, for a little Ian Unger in, in Michigan, go ahead. If you have a heart for service dogs and for, for kids. So that's my feel good story of the week. I hope everybody joins me for next week's episode of honestly speaking with Tara. You can always follow me at Tara Setmayer on Twitter at honestly Tara on Twitter at the Tara Setmayer on Instagram. Hashtag me, tweet me, questions, suggested guest topics. I always like to hear from you. I'm really interactive. Thank you again for joining me. We'll see you next week.